I want to invite you to turn with me as we uh, resume our study of the book of Acts. You know, we had some little bit of a break over the holidays with some messages for Christmas and New Year's, but we're going to get back into it now for the next several weeks and uh, study the book of Acts. And we left off in chapter 21, and I want us to take a look at chapters seven, or chapter 21, verses 7 to 14. Now, I think most of you know I spent a lot of time in academics, and one of the things I remember when I was teaching full-time at the college and graduate levels was almost every semester in my classes, I'd have one or two audit students. And if you think back to your college days, you may remember that concept of an audit. An audit is when you get to go to class and get the benefit of the information, but you're not required to do any of the work. You receive a grade. You don't receive a grade. You don't receive credit, but you get the benefit of, of learning. And as I was thinking about our message this morning, it occurs to me that a lot of Christians want to audit the Christian life. They want the benefit of eternal life, but they don't want to put in the time to be strong disciples of Jesus Christ. As we're going to see this morning, there's a difference between being saved, born again, uh, names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, a child of God, saved by grace through faith, and being a disciple. Those are not automatic. It's not automatic to be a disciple. A lot of people uh, want to audit the Christian life. They don't have to take any tests or quizzes or do any homework. They want the blessings without the responsibility. That's an audit. And that's what a lot of Christians do every Sunday all across this land. Probably right about now in churches across this land, there are people who are auditing Jesus. They're only attending for informational purposes. They come to church, but outside of class, to stretch the analogy, they really don't live out their faith. They're not fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And I hope that doesn't describe you, because the world needs fully engaged, focused followers of Christ. It doesn't need sleepy, part-time Christians. If you care about, if all you care about is heaven and hell, then auditing won't pose any risks in that regard. But if you want to know what it's like to experience the amazing benefits of a deep, loyal, loving relationship with our Savior, then you need to follow Him passionately, faithfully, regularly. There's a famous poem by Robert Frost, first published in 1915 in the Atlantic Monthly. Frost, of course, is one of the most highly respected American poets of the 20th century. He's the only poet to receive four Pulitzer Prizes for poetry. But his poem, The Road Not Taken, describes two roads discovered during a walk in the woods. Frost knows he can only explore one, and he tells himself that someday he'll travel the other. But realistically, he knows he'll never return. And by the time you reach the end of this short poem, you realize Frost is talking about something much more important than a simple choice of trails in a forest. He's talking about life choices. The most famous line from The Road Not Taken comes from the last stanza, and it goes like this, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Frost is not talking about the choice of paths in the woods, but the choice of paths in a person's personal life. And choosing a road symbolizes any choice we have to make between alternatives that appear at the outset equally attractive, but in reality they lead to entirely different 
destinations. What makes the difference between contented, influential, mature believers versus complacent, immature believers comes down to what path you choose. If you want to live life to the fullest and experience the fullness of joy that the Apostle John talks about, then you have to ask yourself, who am I following? Are you auditing the Christian life? Or are you fully devoted? Most Christians sadly opt for the lazy path. It's well worn because most believers take it. But I'm asking this morning is, what I'm asking this morning is, have you taken the road less traveled? So in our text this morning, to put it in historical context, it is May of 57 A.D. And Paul, arguably one of the most famous disciples of all time, is making his way toward Jerusalem to be there in time for Pentecost. And as, we, as we've seen since we've started following Paul in the book of Acts when he got saved in Acts chapter 9 and then you know, his journeys began in Acts chapter 13, Paul always took the right path. Wasn't always the popular path. It wasn't always the one that his uh, people, his friends, and the fellow Christians wanted him to take, as we're going to see in the text this morning. But it was the right path. On his third missionary journey alone, Paul traveled some 2,700 miles. And you know, think about life in those days. What that travel was like. I mean, today, you know, a good ministry trip for us will take. Four or five thousand miles, you know, so this is nothing. But back in that day, that was a lot. And again and again on those journeys, he took the right path, the one less traveled, no matter what the cost. So for the last 10 years or so, contextually here, since April of 48 AD, Paul had been experiencing more and more persecution, trials, difficulties, suffering. At one point on his first journey, he was stoned and dragged outside the city of Lystra and left for dead. And as he makes his way to Jerusalem, Paul's suffering was about to reach new heights, and he knew it. He, he had known it for some time. He probably had a particular sense of foreboding and impending doom when he had escaped the riot at Ephesus that we looked at back in Acts chapter 19. And within the next 10 years from the moment in time that we're focused on this morning, Within 10 years from now, Paul would be martyred. And yet, despite the suffering and trials, Paul steadfastly followed Christ. In Acts 21, in our text, Paul arrives at Philip's house in Caesarea. Now, this was the same Philip who came on the scene way back in Acts chapter 6. He was one of those seven deacons that was chosen to help minister to the body so that the elders could focus on teaching the word. Philip, this is the same Philip that was involved in evangelizing the Ethiopian government official in Acts chapter 8. And Paul comes to his house here. Uh, Jerusalem was about 65 miles southeast of Caesarea. And that would be a long two-day trip in, in that day. I mean, today people commute 65 miles one way sometimes to work every day. But back then, that's a long two-day trip. And this short historical account of Paul at Philip's house on his way to Jerusalem is one of the clearest illustrations of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. So before we dive into the text, let's define some terms. Let's define what it means to be a disciple. The word disciple 
is the word mathetes. It's used 269 times in the New Testament, almost exclusively, well, actually exclusively in the Gospels and Acts. And it means to be associated with, committed to, or in close proximity to someone, to be a follower of someone. And in the New Testament, there were disciples of other people other than Christ. I mean, obviously, disciples of Christ is the most common use of the term, but you had disciples of John the Baptist. The New Testament talks about those that were disciples of the Pharisees. There were disciples of Paul, disciples of Peter, disciples of Apollos. So you could be a follower, be associated with lots of different people. But what we're talking about this morning is being a follower, being committed to, uh, a follower of Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating, there were three types of disciples of Christ. There were the curious who were unsaved. They simply followed Christ because the crowds were gathered around him. They wanted to see what he was doing. They were intrigued by the miracles, but they never believed in him unto eternal life. And an example of this would be Judas, who was a follower of Christ, yet never saved. And also the crowds. We read about that in John chapter 6, for example. It specifically says these were followers, but they didn't believe. And then there's the convinced. And these are saved people who believed the gospel, trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, but they never were fully committed, or not always consistently committed anyway. And Peter's the classic example there. He certainly was not following Christ when he denied Him, cursed Him, and and ran from him, right? And then you've got the goal here, and that is the committed disciple of Christ. These are those who have believed the gospel and are faithfully following Christ. And Paul, that we're looking at this morning, is a good example of this as he traveled to Jerusalem. So what does it mean to follow Christ? Let's read this short uh, text, eight verses, and then I want to point out four marks of a disciple as illustrated by Paul. So I'm reading from Acts chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. We're going to put some verses up on the screen as we get to them. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we encourage you to pick up a, a free copy of, of the Bible out on the information table and, and bring it with you to church when you can. I know a lot of people uh, use the electronic version. That's fine. If I was sitting out there, I'd probably be looking at it on my phone too. But if you need a Bible, a print Bible, please pick one up. Beginning in verse 7, and when... We had finished our voyage from Tyre. We came to Talmais and greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. Notice uh, the first person plural here, Luke, the, the author under the inspiration of the Spirit, was with them at this point in the journey. And verse 8 says, On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So this prophet is just using a creative way to illustrate what God had told him, that Paul, when he gets to Jerusalem, is headed for some trouble. And as we said, Paul already knew this. Now notice verse 12. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. 
Now notice Paul's answer in verse 13. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. So I want us to just point out four marks of a disciple as we answer the question, what does it mean to follow Christ? The first one that I notice here is an undivided attention. An undivided attention. Paul, not just here but characteristically throughout his ministry, heard the word of the Lord. His ministry began by hearing the word of the Lord on the road to Damascus. Uh, he had ignored the word of the Lord in the, old, in the form of the Old Testament prophets, had misconstrued it, misunderstood it, and was murdering and killing Christians as a Pharisee. But he finally heard the word of the Lord when the Spirit broke through on the road to Damascus. He believed the gospel. He was saved. And from that point on, we see Paul consistently listening to the word of God and not the word of naysayers. And we pick it up in verse 10, which we just read. As we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus. So here's a first reference to the Word of God. Remember, in that time, the Bible wasn't complete yet. So God was still unveiling inspired, infallible truths through the mouths of prophets. Today, we have everything we need for life and godliness right here in the Word of God. So we don't have prophets who can stand up and say, God told me such and such, and we need to call the printing presses and add a 67th book to the Bible. It doesn't work that way. This is the totality of God's special revelation to mankind. But in Paul's day, he had to hear and listen to the prophets. And we also saw, by the way, it's not on the screen, but up in verse uh, 9, uh, Philip had these daughters that were uh, prophesying, and, and God was giving information uh, to Paul. And when Agabus stood up, he said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. So Paul was tuned in to the word of the Lord. You could almost say wherever Paul went, the word of the Lord went with him. Sometimes being spoken to him. Sometimes Paul speaking it frequently, speaking it to uh, others as he shared the word of God. And Paul listened to this prophet. He was attentive. Now sometimes when we hear the word of God, he gives us good news. Sometimes he gives us bad news. For example, it's pretty good news to think that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation shall have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Jesus tells us that. That's good news. Amen? How many of you are glad? Let me just get some audience participation here. Um, I know it's, it's, it's early and we're tired. It's been a long week. But how many of you are glad you don't have to go to hell? Okay, good. Just to make, that's an easy one for you, right? But there are other passages of Scripture, the Word of God, that aren't so encouraging. You know, uh, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Second uh, Timothy 3. And Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble. That's not very encouraging, but it's a reality, right? It's a sign of the times. And it's, so sometimes God gives good news, sometimes God gives discouraging news. But it's all the Word of God. And in this case, Paul heard some discouraging news, but he was resolute. He didn't, he didn't, he, his attention was undivided. Um, notice they said, you know, the text tells us, we pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, that would be a pretty easy decision to make if you weren't heeding in an undivided, focused way the Word of God. 
if you've just been told you're going to be arrested and tortured, and all of your friends and counselors are saying, don't go, don't go, don't go, I can tell you which decision I probably would have leaned toward. But in the power of the Spirit, and because he had an undivided attention as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, he, he wasn't persuaded. It reminds me of an, account, an encounter that Jesus had with Peter. Uh, this is a fascinating encounter in Matthew chapter 16. The Lord uh, has just told the disciples that he's going to have to go to the cross. And Peter, as he often did, jumps in and says, No, Lord. Those two famous words that should never go together, right? No, Lord. Peter says, No, Lord. And notice what the Lord says to Peter when he rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. Now, I mean, nobody wants to be called Satan. So this was a pretty strong rebuke. Because indeed, the concept of Jesus not going to the cross to pay for the sins of the world was a satanic concept. So Jesus rightly referred to what Peter was saying here, trying to keep Jesus from the cross, as satanic. And by the way, this is a helpful verse to remember when you come to passages like 1 John 3, where the Bible says, if you're not, whoever is not abiding in Christ is of the devil. Uh, that's not talking about unbelievers. That's talking about a believer. A believer can be of the devil when you're walking in the flesh and not of the spirit. Not only can he be of the devil, you can be Satan himself, according to Jesus. <laughs> See, when we're a believer and we cater to the flesh, we walk after the lust of the flesh, we don't walk in the spirit, we are essentially acting like a child of Satan in that moment. You can never be sinning as a believer and blame that on the new nature. You can't say, oh, that new nature in Christ made me sin. No, no, no. God doesn't lead anybody to sin. That's the old man. That's the old man. So absolutely, a believer, as John makes clear in 1 John 3, can be of the devil if you're not abiding in Christ, if you're not following Christ and a disciple of Christ. Here, Jesus takes it one step further and actually calls Peter Satan. But notice he says, you are an offense to me. Why? Because you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. In order to be faithfully following Christ, you have to be tuned into what he says, not what everyone else is saying. There are many voices out there, and not all of them are constructive, well-intentioned though they may be. I mean, these uh, friends of Paul, including Luke, they weren't ungodly. They weren't uh, trying to come against the Lord. They were just doing what friends do. They're saying, oh, we don't want to lose you. It's dangerous there. Don't go. But God said go. And Peter, I mean, Paul had an undivided attention as a disciple of the Lord. We've got to be mindful of the things of God, not the things of men. And this is precisely what Christ was getting at, at later on in uh, this same passage in chapter 16 in his famous call to discipleship. He follows up his rebuke to Peter with these words. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I'm going to come back to this verse in a moment, but I want to point out very important here that this is not a call to eternal life. Nobody gets eternal life by denying himself, taking up his cross, and following me. Jesus was only speaking here to people that were already saved. He was talking to the disciples. Uh, 
Thankfully, our entrance into heaven is not contingent upon how faithfully we follow Christ or how much we listen to our own flesh versus the Spirit. This is a call to discipleship. And as I've already demonstrated, there you can be a believer but not be a disciple, just as Peter was. We've looked at two examples, one he denied Christ and also when he tried to keep Christ from the cross. Uh, so you can be a believer and not be a disciple. The goal is to be both. The goal is to be a believer and to then be a committed disciple. And that comes by denying yourself. And I'll explain what that means in a moment. So the first mark of a disciple is an undivided attention. The second is an undistracted ambition. Listen to how Paul responds to these friends of his. He responds undeterred from his goal. He says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound. In other words, the words of this prophet don't deter me. They don't distract me from my purpose. Now, as I said, the news this prophet shared was by no means pleasant. It was troubling. And it would have been very easy for Paul to become unsettled and distracted. Especially with those of weaker faith egging him on. Don't go, don't go. But his ambition was resolute. Again, same idea that we, we saw with Peter. And, and, and when Peter had said, no, Lord, and God says, Jesus, no, get behind me, Satan, you're an offense to me. A disciple of Jesus, a fully devoted follower of Christ, is marked by an undistracted ambition. It reminds me of the story in Luke chapter 10 of Mary and Martha. Do you remember this? The sisters that were serving the Lord as he came to uh, have dinner with them in their home. And Martha uh, was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Uh, therefore, tell her to help me. And, and what did Jesus say? No, no, no. Uh, Martha, Mary has chosen the better part. See, It's easy to become distracted as a disciple, even by good things. Sometimes the good can be the enemy of the best. Here's an example, just like we saw with Paul's friends. They weren't intentionally doing anything wrong, but they were a distraction. And Paul, as a disciple, was undistracted. His, he had laser focus on what God had called him to do, uh, no matter what, you know, what the result. Uh, Jesus himself said, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not scatter with me, gather with me scatters abroad. You know, sometimes even those with the best of intentions can end up getting in the way of God's will. So when you feel certain ways or think certain things or have certain opinions, make sure that they're part of God's will and not just your well-intentioned desires. Right? You have to have an undistracted ambition. Keep the goal in mind. Keep the main thing the main thing. And that characterized Paul. So a disciple is marked by an undivided attention, an undistracted ambition, and then we see an unparalleled allegiance. He's willing to die for Christ. And this is really the essence of what we get from this passage. Discipleship is all about allegiance. And Paul illustrates that, no matter what the cost. So back to verse 13. I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I wonder what was going through Paul's mind at this time. 
mean, remember, he had been on the opposite end of murder and death and martyrdom. He had murdered many Christians before he met the Lord, including Stephen. Because if you remember, Saul first comes on the scene in the biblical record at the end of Acts chapter 7, or maybe it's the beginning of Acts chapter 8, they, they go together, there, there's no chapter divisions, but after Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned to death, they laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. And it seems as though Saul was superintending over that decision to kill Stephen. But certainly we know from the biblical record that he was going house to house and dragging Christians out. That's where he was headed when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. And here he says, I'm willing to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if he was thinking about all the people he had killed, all the Christians he had killed. Yet Jesus saved him. And, and how did Jesus save Paul? The same way he saved any of us, by dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. So how could Paul possibly stop short of the ultimate sacrifice in following Jesus after all Jesus had done for him? And so again, back to this famous call to discipleship, Jesus said, if you desire to come after me, if you want to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, you've got to take up your cross. Discipleship requires self-denial in the most fundamental areas of your personal life. What Jesus said applies to anyone who really wants to follow him. The Jews had renounced Jesus in the first century. And now his disciples, he's calling them to renounce themselves. When he says take up his cross, you know, I think everybody understands the reference here. The Romans customarily compelled someone condemned to crucifixion to carry at least part of the, of the posts that were used in the crucifixion up to the execution site. Jesus, of course, did this. And this act gave a public testimony to the fact that this person was under uh, uh, authority of those that he had opposed. He was being submissive to them. They, he was forced submission. It was both a punishment and, and as such a warning to others who would defy the Roman government and a humiliation. And Jesus is saying here that as a disciple we have to publicly declare our submission to him whom we had formerly rebelled against. Self-denial. Self-denial. Self-denial doesn't involve denying ourselves of things. A lot of people say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some self-denial. I'm not going to have dessert, or I'm not going to eat ice cream anymore. I'm not going to, you know, do, do this or that. That's not the denial that it's talking about. Jesus is talking here about denying one's own authority over his or her life. That's the great challenge. In this text, we see three imperatives. An imperative is a form of the Greek word that's a command, just like it is in English. The first two, deny and take up, are aorist imperatives, indicating a decisive action. An aorist means the continuing result of a one-time past action. So you make the one-time decision to deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me, which is a present imperative indicating a continuous action. So it's not just enough to say, I'm going to deny myself this, that, this luxury or this treat or this whatever. 
It's a decisive action that results in consistent, faithful following of Christ. It's unparalleled allegiance. You can't get more allegiant than being willing to die. right? And that's what Paul was literally willing to do. Now, so far in our uh, culture, uh, at least I assume, I don't know your, all of your journeys and backgrounds, but I presume that no one here has been called to die for Christ like our brothers and sisters have in other parts of the world. So our, deni- our self-denial and our taking up the cross means denying our own authority over our life so that when that time comes, and if the Lord tarries is coming, it could very well come, we will have the same unparalleled allegiance that Paul had and be resolute. Because our life is not our own. Our life, Paul understood, as he wrote about in Philippians and Colossians, is just a speck on the timeline of eternity. We're, we're not citizens here. Our home is in heaven. We're just passing through. You know, one breath to the next is nothing. We just change locations. We go from living on an earth bound under sin, under the curse of sin, to living in the presence of glory. So unparalleled allegiance. Someone has said to deny oneself means in every moment of life to say no to self and to say yes to God. And again, back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 16. And these, these next two passages are frequently misunderstood. So listen closely. Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, he's not talking about eternal life here. He never mentions heaven or hell or eternity. This is talking about the quality of life as a disciple. He's just given the famous call to discipleship to follow me. And now he's kind of explaining that in a little greater detail. The word life here is the Greek word psuche. It's where we get the English word psychology. And and it's often translated in places in the New Testament, soul in our English. And that can be very misleading because it literally just means life, the whole person, the immaterial and material part of you. So if you desire to save your life, in other words, if your focus is on your life, everything about you, your emotions, your physicality, the pleasures of life, then you're going to miss out, you're going to lose the true purpose of life and the true blessings of life. In other words, living for yourself now is going to result in a leaner life, spiritually speaking. You're not going to have that fullness of joy that comes from abiding in Christ, being a fully devoted follower of Christ. But if you're willing to lose your life, your whole being, and recognize your place in this world and your priority and your submission to Christ, then guess what? You're going to find it. You're going to find that life is a joy unsurpassed, unlike anything you've ever thought. Whatever temporal pleasures and enjoyments of life that you thought really make you smile will pale in comparison to the fully devoted disciple of Christ, life of a disciple. John F. Walvoord was a giant among men. Literally, he was a pretty tall man, but he was also one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. I had the privilege of sitting under his teaching at Dallas Seminary and also meeting with him several times outside of class, went to lunch together one time. He's with the Lord now, but he was just an incredible man of God. And he put it this way regarding this verse. For the world, there is immediate gain, but ultimate loss. For the disciple... There is immediate loss, but ultimate gain. It's about priorities. Jesus goes on to say, and I'm quoting here from the Holman Christian, 
Um, what will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his life? See, here's where a lot of modern English translations translate that word psuche as soul. And so they immediately think, immediately think heaven or hell. In other words, they think to get to heaven, you've got to give up everything. You've got to abandon everything. You've got to do something. Well, the whole testimony of Scripture could not be more clear that that's precisely not how we get eternal life. We don't get eternal life by giving up something. The Bible, not one time, Genesis to Revelation, says you give something to God and he'll give you eternal life. There's one giver and one receiver. God's the giver. For God's love of the world, he gave his only begotten son. We receive him. It's a free gift. Absolutely free. No strings attached. If you think you've got to be a disciple to get to heaven, good luck with that. Because how many of you can be a fully devoted follower of Christ, consistent enough to measure up to God's standard of holiness? Absolutely never. It's a free gift received by the grace of God. That's what grace means, free. And so I think the Holman Christian does a better job here of translating that word psuche as life. So what's it going to benefit you if you have all kinds of material wealth, you're happy, healthy, you've got all kinds of money to go do entertainment, everything's great, but yet you don't have the one thing that we crave most, which is fulfillment, contentment, true joy the biblical sense of joy again it's not about heaven or hell so we saw that you have a disciple is marked by undivided attention undistracted ambition unparalleled assurance and then i like the very last verse in our text because it shows me that a disciple is marked by unwavering assurance unwavering assurance unable to dissuade him paul's friends stopped begging him and committed the situation to the Lord. Did you notice that? It really jumped off the page at me as I was reading that this week. When he would not be persuaded, we ceased, Luke says, and said, the will of the Lord be done. So get this, not only did Paul's confidence never falter, but his unparalleled allegiance also engendered an unwavering confidence on the part of everyone else in the group. In other words, they came to the same sense of resolve that Paul had. God is in control. God's in control. God's got this. In the flesh, they were saying, don't go. And, and as Luke alludes to, they were weeping. They were sad. They loved this man. Don't go. But as Paul set the example in his unparalleled allegiance to the Lord, and his unwavering assurance that God's got this, it created the same sense of confidence in those around him. From the earliest days of his ministry, Paul had, had consistently evidenced this calm assurance, trusting God in every circumstance. We can go back to the first letter he ever wrote in 49 AD, right after his first missionary journey, when he says to the Galatians, Do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. That's the doulos. You've probably heard that word, the Greek word doulos, a bondservant. It's used 127 times in the New Testament. It means a slave. One who had given up their rights, whether by force or willingly, is irrelevant. That's just the meaning of the term. And is now beholden to somebody else. And it's a pretty fascinating term if you kind of do a word study on it and see all the different places it's used. Paul frequently described himself as a doulos, a bondservant. We see that in Romans, Philippians, Titus, for example. 
It also describes Moses and David and Elijah in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Of course, those are all Old Testament believers. But when the Old Testament Hebrew was translated into Greek about 285 years before Christ, they used that word doulos. So not only Paul, but Moses, David, Elijah were bondservants. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is referred to as a bondservant when he laid down his life, Philippians 2. Christian leaders in Paul's pastoral epistle of 2 Timothy are to be doulos, bondservants. The apostles were called bondservants. Old Testament prophets, not mentioned by name, but just referenced as prophets, were referred to as bondservants in the book of Revelation. James, the Lord's brother, calls himself a bondservant in his letter, James 1.1. Peter does the same thing in 2 Peter 1.1. And Jude as well call themselves bondservants. John, in the opening verse of the book of Revelation, refers to himself as a bondservant. We read in Revelation, speaking of Revelation, that tribulation believers who come to faith at great cost were bondservants. See, you know, you think it's hard to get saved now uh, because of all the distractions of life and you don't understand the need for salvation and your own sin. You know, in the tribulation, to, to trust in Christ for salvation most likely means off with your head. That's why they were called bondservants. And indeed, all believers should be bondservants. So Paul considered himself beholden to Christ, duty-bound to Christ, committed to Christ. We see a similar attitude on the part of Peter and John in the early days of the church, going back before Paul was even a believer. When they were being persecuted by the Sanhedrin, the unbelieving Jewish leaders, and Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot speak, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In other words, they were being told, you got to shut up and stop preaching the gospel. And they said, Nope. We, we are confident that our God is able, whatever. If we get thrown in prison, that's fine. They were in prison many times. But we are going to speak because we must obey God, not man. So a disciple is marked by unwavering assurance. So undivided attention, undistracted ambition, unparalleled allegiance, and unwavering assurance. And the takeaway then, as we see Paul's example, is simply this. What road are you taking? Again, it's not about, oh, I might not go to heaven. It's a sin to doubt your salvation. Do you realize when you doubt your salvation, it's like shaking your fist toward Jesus and saying, I know you told me you gave me eternal life, but I don't believe you. <laughs> And how much clearer can Jesus say? Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. John 6, 47. So if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life, case closed. Stop walking around doubting your salvation. But at the same time, you need to decide now because I think troubling times are coming in our culture. Who are you going to follow? And there is great reward both now in terms of a deep inner sense of peace and blessing, as well as at the Bema Judgment, which we've been talking about for several weeks uh, in Sunday mornings, Bible study, uh, for following Christ all the way to the cross. Ask yourself this week, as you think about this passage, what is it costing you to follow Christ? What is it costing you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, reminder from this historical narrative of what it looks like to see 
someone who's fully committed to following in you. And Father, we confess that that's not us. We just must confess it. We're not suffering. We're not. Uh, we're so weak in our faith, uh, most of us. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would strengthen our faith. Give us the kind of courage and boldness that we see exemplified in the life of Paul. And help us to heed the calling of the one who saved us, who said if we want to come after him, we need to deny ourselves. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that hasn't taken that first step of receiving the free gift of eternal life by faith alone in Christ alone, that today, through the proclamation of the gospel, they would, their hearts would be pierced and they would come uh, to saving faith. And then I pray that for all of us who know the Lord, we would just reevaluate uh, our walk with you and ask ourselves what it means and what it's costing us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.